Good morning. I feel a day older. Um, so let's, uh, should we do children's church today? Anybody interested? Yeah. <laughs> Noah's out the door already. All right, <clears throat> let's go ahead and do that. So just a couple things before we jump in. Uh, as you're all clearly aware, uh, Janelle Williams and Allison both had babies this week, right across the hall from each other, as it turned out. Um, and there were two very different experiences Janelle was about a two-hour delivery, and Allison was about two days, uh, and both ended up with healthy, happy baby boys, um, which is good. We're trying to restore balance to the kid quota here, Um, but uh, we are still feeling a little emotionally hungover from all of the events of this week. Um, You know, and it's funny because I just read an article a couple of days ago that the headline was uh, top five things that pastors should never say before a sermon. So I thought, huh, I wonder how many of those I've done wrong. (laughs) Five for five. (laughs) I am an overachiever. Um, But one of them said, uh, said never apologize or never explain why this sermon may not be quite as good as other sermons. So I'm not going to say that. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is a couple months ago, uh, I shared a story, I think it was in a culture alert, uh, a story from, from Finland, and it was about this local uh, Lutheran bishop that had voiced support for the upcoming gay pride parade, um, and a member of his church, a woman who also happens to be a member of parliament, used social media to quote Bible verses in defense of biblical marriage. Um, And so she was kind of challenging her church's position on their support. uh, And because it was posted to social media, people complained. She was brought up on charges for hate speech. Uh, 13 hours of interviews and grilling, uh, and they decided to go ahead with the trial. Well, the the trial has now ended in just this last week. A three-person panel um, ruled that although she had offended members of the LGBT community, She was not guilty of hate speech. Uh, They further stated that the government should not be interpreting biblical concepts. So, interestingly, they've kind of uh, used the separation of church and state um, in the church's favor and saying, yeah, the government has no role interpreting Scripture. Um, So she was found uh, free of all charges, and the prosecution was actually ordered to pay her legal fees. Um, so it was a good outcome, but I, I, I uh, assume it won't be the last such case we hear about as time marches on. Um, so I just wanted to provide that update. Um, so we'll start with prayer before we jump into our continuing study in the book of Revelation. <clears throat> uh, Almighty God, we are grateful to um, gather together. We're privileged to gather together in your name to worship you, um, to glorify you and you alone. We thank you for your careful, loving hand that guides and leads us. We, we thank you for the healthy babies that were born this week and, and for your loving care of the parents, all of whom are doing reasonably well at this point. We are grateful. We pray this morning for those who are those believers who are facing persecution, wherever they may be. 
Um, and we also know that our time may come sooner than we'd like to think um, in terms of facing persecution for our faith. And so we're grateful for the gift of your word. For the, Even the book of Revelation here, as challenging as it is, it reminds us that you are in control. That even as events, world events, local events, uh, transpire in ways that we might not choose and we certainly don't understand, you are still sovereign. Your plan will prevail. So help us stay steadfast and strong in our faith, knowing that if, even if we are to die for the cause of Christ, we do not need to fear the second death because Jesus has died in our place. Help us hear what you have for us in our text this week. Help us learn how to apply this in our lives as we go th- leave this place and go out into the, the world around us. Help us be better ambassadors, uh, better witnesses for our faith. We thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. It's clipping. Can you see which one that is? I don't know why it would be adjusted. Because that's how the rest of this week is gone. <clears throat> so if you were here last week uh, or saw it online or whatever, if you were paying attention even just a little bit, you will likely remember that we were in chapter 4 where uh, through this second vision given to John, we were given a glimpse into the throne room of Almighty God. And it was an overwhelming vision, to say the least. Uh, John described it in terms of these bright, vibrant colors, carnelian and jasper and emerald, and there was a rainbow behind the throne. And there were 24 men seated on thrones surrounding the big throne, and they were all wearing white garments and gold crowns. Uh, He described seven torches of fire, which we were told depicted the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then there were those four creatures, one that had the the appearance of a man, the appearance of an ox. It was like a lion, like an eagle. And they were all covered from head to foot with eyes. Oh, and, and they all had six wings. I mean, this was a stunning scene. Even in our age of CGI, this would be a remarkable thing for us to see. And, and we empathize with John just a little bit, I think, as, as he's trying to, uh, struggling to convey what he saw in this supernatural realm, and he's limited to what we know of the natural world. How do you describe what is indescribable? And then the, his, his initial visual description of this setting comes to an end, and John describes the worship that is taking place there which is the theme for our whole series. It's worship in Revelation. He, he describes how the four-winged creatures are saying or, or singing maybe, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And at the same time, the 24 elders are kneeling down saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And this made me think, reminded me of a couple years back, Lene and I got to go back to Nashville for the, the Getty Worship Conference. Um, and, and every day that conference started with all of the people gathered in this large room, somewhere between eight and 10,000 people, all gathered in this room. Um, they had this kind of a, a scaled-down orchestra, but probably 12 or 15 different pieces playing music. And we started the day by singing these worship songs. And so here's eight or 10,000 people who can actually sing I'm not saying anything about this group. 
but eight or ten thousand people who can actually sing and, and these wonderful you know multi-part harmonies and and we knew then that we, we had this just this little taste of what heavenly worship might be like and, and I'm sure that even pairs pales in comparison to the real thing so this second vision of John's he, he begins to show us what is taking place what has been taking place what will continue to take place in these spheres and, and areas and, and expanses that are far beyond our pay grade now it also struck me that God is not obligated to reveal any of this to us his plan has been set from before we were born, before the earth was created. It's all going according to his plan, whether we're aware, to, aware of it or not. And he doesn't have to tell us anything. And yet, for our benefit, to help us endure and persevere and conquer, our gracious and merciful God gives us this backstage peek to encourage us to assure us that he is in control, that appearances can be deceiving. It may look for all the world like everything is spinning out of control, but it's a controlled spin, and God is at the wheel. So after setting this scene for us in chapter 4, John's vision continues now with the events that continue to take place in the throne room. We start with chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So on the right hand of the one on the throne was a a scroll, and it was written, it says, within and on the back. So it's it's double-sided. It's written on both sides. Now this is in itself a bit unusual. Typically, scrolls were, were, were made so that they were pretty smooth on one side and a little rough on the other. It was really hard to write on both sides. But it wasn't uncommon for some Roman documents, usually wills or contracts, important legal papers, to be written on both sides. And what was often the case was all of the details of the, of the contract would be written on the inside and maybe just a summary description on the back. This may well describe what we're seeing here in Revelation. God does not go on to reveal every detail of his plan for us. He kind of gives us broad strokes. He gives us big ideas to look at. We're given a summary of the events of the end of times. Now, it's also interesting, I think, to note that this scroll sounds very much like what Ezekiel saw in one of his visions. Ezekiel chapter 2 says, And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, And they were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Lamentation, mourning, and woe. That's not a bad description of what starts to happen as the seals are opened. For many, there's going to be a lot of lamentation and mourning and woe. Now, the other unusual feature here, obviously, is that the scroll has seven seals. I mean, usually, one seal is enough to keep the scroll sealed until the appointed receiver of the scroll was allowed to break the seal and, and, and view the documents. So the fact that there are seven seals suggests that the contents here are pretty important. This is a pretty significant document. Now, there's a lot of speculation over what the scroll actually contains. 
There's a lot of commentary on what the contents might be. Some suggest it's the law of God. Some suggest it's his covenant or, or a list of his promises. I think what we'll see going forward is that the scroll contains, or at least symbolizes for us, God's detailed plan for creation, including end times. In fact, it starts to look like the the contents of this scroll or book may well be the same book that Daniel saw in a vision. In his it said, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So when Daniel had this vision, the time was not yet right for him to share what he, the information, the vision he was given. So shut, shut the book. Don't let it out yet. But now John is going to be shown what this book contains. So John sees this scroll, and, and he describes the seals. <clears throat> and then he says, a mighty angel. Not like a regular angel. This is even better than a regular angel. A mighty angel A mighty angel proclaims, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, if this scroll is is God's detailed plan for creation, if if it's the destiny of the world, then who is worthy? Who is worthy enough to enact or to bring about this plan? Who is worthy? And and worthy here means honorable or or deserving. Who, Who is honorable enough? Who's worthy enough? deserving enough, who's earned the right to open the scroll? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So as soon as the angel asks, who is worthy to open the scroll, we are immediately told, nobody. There's nobody worthy. There's nobody honorable enough. There's nobody deserving to open the scroll. No one can bring about God's ultimate plan and destiny, and John begins to weep. Now, we don't know exactly why he begins to weep. I I suspect, but I don't know. Remember, he's just been informed about the state of the seven churches. And thereby, all churches for all times. All of the things that we are, that we are going to experience, trial and persecution and suffering and, and, and tribulation. And John knows that believers, John knows that the Christ followers were at that time and have continued and still are struggling in the middle of a, a wicked and perverse generation. John knows that their faith was and is and continues to waver. John knows that they were and they are being influenced by false teachers. John knows that that the believers were continuing and are continuing to be lured or commanded into worshiping false gods. John knows that that first church and churches thereafter are still succumbing to the allure of lives of wealth and ease. And that those who held firm to their faith were facing persecution and and loss of jobs and even death. So when John sees that no one is able or worthy to open the scrolls, to open the scroll and open the seals, he fears for the church. I think he, he fears for the believers of all ages. He fears for all of creation. He senses that hope may be lost. And he weeps. 
But then one of the elders, one of the 24 around the throne, sees John despairing, sees him weeping, and he speaks, and he says, John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. All right, but what does that mean? It's another slightly odd, kind of a cryptic thing to read, but it turns out it's really very deep and rich in biblical history. In, in Genesis 49, when Jacob was pronouncing blessing on his, blessings on his sons, remember he goes down the list of all the sons, and he pronounces blessing over them all. He got to Judah, and he said, Judah is, like a, lion, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now at that moment, for Judah to hear this, I mean, that was interesting, you know, encouraging. That's not a bad blessing compared to some of the others. But in hindsight, we look at this and we know that this foreshadows that a significant ruler is going to emerge from the tribe or the line of Judah. And we know that ruler to be Jesus. In Isaiah 11, we read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now we know that David was the son of Jesse. We know that Jesus descended from the line of David. Now when I, you, you could argue, I suppose, that if Jesus is the descendant of David, then he is the branch and not the root. But since Jesus is also the Son of God, and the lineage from David to Jesus was predestined from the beginning, then I think it's logically correct to say that Jesus is the root of David. Oh, and probably a branch too, if you want to be technical about it. So the, the only one, the only one worthy to open the seals and to, and to open the scroll, the only one worthy to advance God's plan for the ages is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who is also the root of David. Now, we know, now, we've got this time and history and the rest of Scripture, we know that these references are to Jesus. But I wonder if John knew. Did, did he make that connection right away? Was it, was it obvious to him? Did, did he connect the dots immediately, or did it take him just a minute? I don't know. M- maybe he immediately thought of Matthew 1.1. that says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And maybe that helped him connect the dots. Maybe that was enough for John to quickly recognize, oh, well, I'm pretty sure he's talking about Jesus. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the Root of David. It has to be Jesus. But I think even if he did make the connection quickly. I suspect that in his mind's eye, with the language of the lion, for example, the root of David, who is a king and a, and a warrior, the one who is worthy to open the scroll, the one who is the conqueror, the Jesus who conquered death, I think the image that John had was like a mighty warrior. This is Jesus, the conqueror, the king. One who would come and set things right, who, who, who would make all things right on earth. He, he would right the wrongs. He would deliver justice. He would save the church. And John looks around and says, Jesus is not here. In fact, I don't see anybody that looks like, a, you know, this big, enormous, foreboding, fear-inspiring warrior king 
anywhere in their midst. So, so I think John has this moment of kind of glimmer of hope. Oh, there is somebody worthy. There is somebody who can open the scroll. And then now there's a, a moment of doubt. When, when will the scroll be opened? When will the conquering warrior king Jesus step in? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, I don't want to say that from John's perspective, that this might have been a bit underwhelming and unexpected. But I'm guessing from John's perspective, this was a bit underwhelming and unexpected. To go from a mighty angel declaring, who is worthy to open the scroll, to don't worry, the Lion of Judah can do it. And now he sees a little lamb. And not just a lamb, but what appeared to be a slaughtered lamb. I mean, almost dead lamb. Even if we could conjure up the image of a really fierce-looking lamb. You know, to justify this lamb as the warrior king scroll opener, even if we could conjure that image, it was quickly put to bed by the description of a lamb who appears to be slaughtered or have recently been slaughtered. Or It just doesn't work. And here we have one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith. Even though the elder had just described a conqueror as one who would open the scroll, what John sees appears to be one who has been conquered. A lamb standing as though it had been slain. So this, this paradox is that God's plan to rescue a fallen and sinful humanity was based not on military power and might, but through the apparent weakness of crucifixion and death. This lamb, this lamb who had been slain, had been defeated in a sense. This lamb is the conqueror? This lamb is worthy? It almost defies logic. But remember back again to the letters to the churches. The church in Sardis was told not to fear the tribulation that would come. It said, Some of you are going to be thrown into prison, some of you will die. But the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So this lamb had the appearance of being dead, but it was very much alive and apparently considered a conqueror, worthy, honorable, deserving. This lamb proves the message to the churches. Hold fast to your faith. Chances are we're all going to die, but it just has to be the one time. We're going to die physically, but you don't have to die the second spiritual death. Christ conquered death, and so can we if we abide in him. The lamb was dead and is dead no longer. So I've got to think that John's hope for the churches began building again just a little bit here. And befittingly, the, the description of the lamb does not end there. This slaughtered-looking lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. Now, horns, we're going to see, is kind of a recurring theme throughout the rest of, of Revelation. It almost always, I can't think of an exception, refers to power, usually some kind of government or military power. And we know that seven means total or complete, 
So the lamb that appears to be dead has complete and total power over all of creation. This is one powerful little recently dead lamb. John also describes seven eyes, which again is explained to us. The seven eyes are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. So what we see in chapters 4 and 5 are two very different descriptions, depictions of the Holy Spirit here in the throne room. There are the seven torches of fire from chapter 4 and seven eyes here in chapter 5. So I think clearly we are to understand and recognize the presence, the, the enormous presence of the Trinity here. We have God the Father on the throne. We've got the Lamb standing in the middle and two different descriptions of the Holy Spirit present in the room. And let's also notice the placement, the location of the Lamb. It says between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. So Jesus, as the Lamb, is centrally located. He, he's in the thick of things. He's right in the middle of it. And it turns out he is central to the furtherance of God's plan. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So again, let's try to set this big picture. The, the, the lamb who, in appearance, was slain but is remarkably alive. The lamb takes the scroll from the right hand of God. He is the only one, we're told, the only one who's worthy to open the scroll. But he doesn't open it yet. The scene here is he just takes the scroll from the hand of God the Father. He just takes possession of it, and this starts a new, a new round of worship. Now again, nothing's really happened. The seals haven't been removed. That's the part we all really want to get to, right? The seals haven't been removed. The scroll has not been opened. And yet, the four creatures and the 24 elders all fall down before the Lamb. I mean, this picture essentially shows us Jesus receiving ruling authority from God. It's not dissimilar from a coronation, just a weird kind of coronation. This, this handoff of sorts affirms the deity and the ruling authority of Christ who is here depicted as the Lamb. So Jesus is going to be moving forward with God's plan of redemption. Even though the scroll itself is as yet untouched, it's not opened, this transition of power, for lack of a better description, is itself cause for praise and worship. But God is in no way diminished because Jesus is now exalted to king of the universe. They're both members of the same Godhead, along with the Spirit, who's twice represented here. So this is just an acknowledgement, really, I think, of the, the position and role of Christ in the Godhead and how he's going to move history forward. And for proof of that, the four living creatures and the elders all bow down before the Lamb. This is the same reaction from the same people that was described in chapter 4. Only that, direction, that worship was directed to the one on the throne, and we're meant to connect the dots that Jesus is God. He is worthy of worship. 
in addition to just falling down in worship, we're told that each of the elders was holding a harp as well as a golden bowl of incense. Now, interestingly, this is the only time that the word harp is found in Revelation. And yet, (laughs) we have developed this whole popular cultural misconception that heaven is full of cloud-lounging harp players. You know, even the pretty ones. And some will, will think of this and think, oh, how lovely. And others will think of this and think, who would want to spend eternity playing a harp? Or being around a bunch of other harp players? So again, we need to be careful about building up ideas and doctrines based on single references to anything. Now in context here, the harp is related to the singing of a new song. It's an accompaniment. It's not an eternal pastime. So leading and performing music for the temple was part of the responsibility of the Old Testament priests. And here, in addition to the harp, they're holding golden bowls of incense, which we're we're told represents the prayers of the saints. So again, this harkens back to Old Testament temple worship, where the priests had the responsibility of presenting the, the prayers, the petitions of the saints to God. Way back in Exodus, Moses was instructed to build an altar of incense. And the priests presented the prayers and the petitions of the people to God, and, and the smoke from the incense would drift up and became a sweet aroma to the Lord. This is, again, a consistent theme throughout Scripture. Psalm 141 says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. That idea of of incense and smoke being the petitions, the pleas of the saints. So here in chapter 5, we're not given any more information as to what the prayers or petitions of the saints might be. We're just told that this represents the prayers and petitions. But I want to jump ahead just a little bit because it does come up in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 10 says, They, the saints, cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's kind of a universal prayer of the persecuted. Right? That's the prayer of the martyrs for ages. Oh, Lord, how long? How many of us have prayed that without even being persecuted, just facing hard times? Oh, Lord, how long? It's a cry for rescue. It's a cry for help. In the seven letters of the churches, each letter, every letter referred to persecution and tribulation and even death. From that day to this, the church has been persecuted in varying ways and to various degrees. So this prayer... This crying out has gone unabated for centuries. But we're told here that our prayers, our our pleas for justice, our pleas for all of this to come to an end are not only heard, but they're kind of center stage in the throne room. I mean, this, this had to provide some comfort, I think, for the seven churches who read this for the first time. For every believer who's read it since, we know for sure that our prayers do not fall on deaf ears. I mean, a a lack of immediate response from God in no way means he is uninterested or uncaring. In fact, our prayers we see here are a central part of the drama being played out in the throne room. 
the focus here remains on the worship of the Lamb with a new song. And I found this interesting. Here's the scene of worship from chapter 4. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. In Revelation 5, with the introduction of the Lamb, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. The new song is one of redemption. The first song was creation. This new song is all about redemption. This is worship of the Redeemer, the slaughtered lamb. So it turns out the the appearance of being slain, which, remember, Jesus was killed. He appeared dead for three days or so. Having been slain is one of the main qualifiers for a Redeemer. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. And ransom means bought or purchased. So a price was paid for the people of God. And the price was the blood of the Lamb. He had to be sacrificed. He had to be slaughtered. Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection was necessary for our redemption. He paid the debt that we were unable to pay. And then after that, I think there's this this great statement of inclusion. The people who had been ransomed come from every tribe, every language, every people group, and every nation. Because God so loved the world that he gave his son as a ransom. Now I know this is where some people struggle a bit. I mean, this is on its face a very inclusive offer. It's all languages and all tribes and all nations. But it comes with exclusive terms. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved. There's no standard of good enough that guarantees an eternity in heaven. Salvation is available and free to all, but it's according to God's terms. I mean, he made the game. He gets to set the rules. And lots of people don't like that, that Jesus is the only way part. I mean, they want to be spiritual, but they want to be spiritual on their terms, based on their definition. You know, they want to be religious, but follow their rules or their idea of how it should work. So even though this offer of redemption is available to all people everywhere, it is extended only to those who receive it through faith in Christ. When eternity is at stake, being good enough isn't enough. But it's this shared faith in the salvation offered through Christ that unites all people, all nations, all tribes into a united kingdom, all gathered around the banner of heaven. Not only are we as followers of Christ, not only are we part of the kingdom of saints, but we've been made priests whose primary function is to worship and lead worship in this united kingdom of Christ followers. We all become worship leaders. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I I have a hard time seeing a rhythm in there, but I'm sure it sounded fantastic when they did it. And, And I like how this starts. It says, John looks, but he hears. 
I looked and I heard. From all around the throne, the voice of the four living creatures, the voice of the 24 elders, and the voice of myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Now, generally speaking, the use of myriad is used to signify a pretty big number. Some translations, instead of myriads, they, will, they translate it as countless thousands. Uh, one, one or two translations uh, translates it as 10,000. So if you want to do math, myriads of myriads might be something like 10,000 times 10,000. 100 million. 100 million voices. All at the same time, in addition to myriads of myriads, John also says thousands of thousands. So maybe another 100 million. I don't know. That seems like a lot. It's a lot of voices. And the most amazing thing about this is here are these millions and millions and millions of voices all singing, saying the same thing, and apparently in perfect unison because John can make out every word. all saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We could practice this for weeks and just the 40 of us wouldn't be able to say it so we could understand every word. But what's more amazing than that, I think, is this, this, this cacophonous act of worship is also a sevenfold tribute. Seven, again, total, complete, They're recognizing the absolute deity of the Lamb by listing power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. So again, if there's any lingering doubt as to the deity of Christ, this ought to end that doubt. This is intended to reveal to us the complete Godhead status of Christ. He is an equal and worthy part of the Trinitarian God. And once this tribute has been offered by the already uncountable number of elders and creatures and angels singing worthy is the lamb we get and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell fell down and worshipped now this one's a little more interesting uh John sees a a glimpse of, I think, what's going to be the final outcome. The final outcome of all that's about to transpire over the next few chapters. This is is kind of a glimpse of the culmination, the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. Satan has been conquered. The followers of Satan, the earth dwellers, have been dispatched to join him in eternal torment. And the prayers of the saints have been answered. They've not just been redeemed, but they've been vindicated. Justice has been served. And the response is worship. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing, honor, glory, and might forever. Every creature in heaven and earth, all of the hundreds of millions of angels, all joining in. And after they sing, the living creatures say, the four living creatures say, Amen. So be it. This is as it should be. They give their hearty approval of this song of blessing, and the elders fall down and worship. So again, let's, let's put this back into context. We've gone through those first chapters where the churches have been instructed to endure, to persevere, to hold fast to their faith. 
And then they read John's account of this scene. And however shaky their faith may have been, it has to be a little bit strengthened now. It has to be a little stronger than it was just a few minutes ago. They've been given this picture of the God to whom they are to remain faithful. They've been reminded that Jesus was and is the Messiah. He is the risen Lord. He went out like a lamb to slaughter, but he's coming back as a lion. He's coming back as a warrior to defeat Satan once and for all, to finish the redemption of the saints, to answer the prayers, the pleas of the saints, and to usher in the eternal kingdom. And it seems like this this ought to be enough to bolster the wavering faith of those who are being persecuted. And yet, God shows us a little bit more. This is not the end of the book. He doesn't call us just to stand firm and, and, and walk worthy. He gives us a peek into what it is that we're actually doing battle with, who it is we're fighting. He, he shows us, he paints for us a picture of, of the battle over the next several chapters to prove to us that he knows exactly what is happening. He knows exactly how this battle is being played out. And he's still in charge. And he shows us to encourage us to stand strong, to continue to worship the one who is worthy. Because it's all going to come out the way they have it planned. This is a book of encouragement, not weird speculation. This is a book to call the church to stand firm, to walk worthy, to hold fast to the faith. We can deal with all this other stuff. Even if it kills us, we win. Let's pray. Lord, again, we marvel at this picture that you have supplied for us. Um, there's, there's no really good reason why you would share this with us. Uh, certainly, we've made a mess of it in trying to understand it. Uh, we've got all kinds of weird ideas and speculations about what this book means, but Lord, I, th- I think it's just—I think it's a love letter. It, it, it shows us that that you love us. You sent your Son to die for us. That you are—you are in charge. You are in total command of all that is taking place, and you call us to remain faithful, to continue to worship, to continue to serve an Almighty God, to con- to continue to worship and serve the the Messiah who died for us, to live spirit-filled lives to testify to who you are and what you have done. Lord, I pray as we continue to go through the rest of this book and we get into some of these more challenging sections and, and what they may or may not mean, Lord, that we keep our, our, our ears and our hearts and our minds open, but it all gets filtered through this lens of your love for us and how we are called to worship you. That we don't get caught up in the, in the details and, and lose sight of the, the forest for the trees here as we move forward. But Lord, we, we remember that, that you are, are giving us have given us this book. You, you show us these scenes because you care for us. You love us. You, you want us to know what's happening and, and how we are to withstand and persevere and even conquer. And we are so grateful that it's not up to us alone to do all of those things. Thank you for how you've gone before us, how you've planned all this before us, and how you have equipped us to deal with whatever it is you move into our life path. So we thank you, thank you for being gracious and loving and for hearing our prayers and answering our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.